Great. So I'm Georgine Lambu. I'll be talking about genitourinary syndrome of menopause. Thank goodness I'm the only talk standing between you and the cocktail. And it's a vaginal talk, too, so that'll be really exciting. Um, I don't have any, uh, I have, these are my disclosures, but I don't, they don't relate to anything that I will be speaking about today. And today's objectives is we're going to talk a little bit about the impact of vaginal pain um, on the physical and emotional well-being of uh, premenopausal and postmenopausal women. And then we're going to talk about uh, what are the important elements to consider when we're evaluating these types of patients. And then we're going to uh, briefly go over some uh, multimodal treatment approaches for this type of pain. I like to start with the basics because I think there's a lot of... Uh, there are a lot of myths about the different types of genital pain terminology that are in books and on social media. So there are several words that we can use for genital pain in females. Uh, dyspareunia is one of them, vulvodynia and vaginismus. And people use these interchangeably like they're the same thing, but they really are not. And um, the language that we use with our patients, we have to be very specific uh, about uh, when it comes to the language that we use because if we don't use the right language, we tend to confuse our patients and we give them multiple diagnoses that may not necessarily uh, apply to them. So the first one is dyspareunia, which just basically means pain with intercourse. It's just a description of a symptom. And then there's vulvar pain, and vulvar pain is classified as pain uh, with a known etiology, and then uh, vulvodynia, which is pain of unknown etiology lasting longer than three months. And then there's vaginismus, which is a musculoskeletal dysfunction. It's an involuntary muscle spasm um, accompanied by, with, uh, by uh, fear of touch. And then there's hypoactive sexual desire disorders and arousal disorders. And these are diagnoses that have nothing to do with pain, so we're not even going to talk about them today. And let's start with uh, vulvar pain because that is very prevalent and a little bit easier to talk about. Uh, so vulvar pain, which can um, happen in any age, uh, comes in, is classified basically as vulvar pain with a known etiology or vulvar pain with unknown etiology. And this is a little bit confusing for providers because um, the new classification, which was uh, from the International Society for the Study of Vulvovaginal Diseases, so say that as a repetitively after a couple of cocktails, um, but um, they got together with uh, ISHWISH and the IPPS, and we came up with this consensus, consensus terminology, and we updated the terminology in 2015. And basically, um, vulvar pain, if you know what's causing it, great, then you just attribute it to, to that cause. But if you don't know what's causing it, then it becomes vulvodynia. I think what really confuses providers, including myself, um, is that they also gave us the freedom to say that women may have vulvodynia uh, with potentially other associated causes. And those causes can be many, many causes, um, including musculoskeletal com comorbidities, genetic factors, hormonal factors. And so all of a sudden, a term that was very clear as vulvar pain of unknown ideology all of a sudden became very complex because we're like, well, how is vulvodynia with an associated cause any different than vulvar pain of known etiology. We're not going to get into that today, <laughs> but just so you know that we are very aware of that confusion. And then there's vaginismus, and vaginis vaginismus is a special one. Uh, it's been redefined as genital pelvic pain penetration disorder. How many people prefer vaginismus? <laughs> right? So in DSM-5, there's a new term to describe vaginismus. Um, and this change was made, it was a very intentional change because uh, the new definition is supposed to capture vaginal pain that lasts uh, longer than six months and is, and is associated with an intense fear or anxiety uh, associated with intercourse, um, as well as a tensing or tightening of the lower pelvic and uh, lower abdominal muscles. So basically what this has done is it's, it's, it's taken a disorder, which was initially a very psychogenic kind of or, uh, uh, definition. And, and now they're telling us it's not just fear and anxiety, but there may also be a, a musculoskeletal dysfunction component that's associated with this new terminology. And so we have to be very careful in the way we use it. And the other thing that they said is that this condition cannot be better attributed to 
a non-sexual mental disorder, so for patients that have like PTSD from military sexual trauma and so forth, that's not vaginismus. Uh, relationship distress, and I love pointing that out to my patients. You don't have vaginismus if you can't get along with your husband or partner. Um, other life stressors impacting a person's sexual desire or any other medical condition. So this is really, we're looking at a psychological fear, anxiety accompanied by musculoskeletal dysfunction. And everything else is not vaginismus. And then there is genital urinary syndrome of menopause. Try saying that repetitively. Um, also known as GSM. This is, was previously known as vaginal, vulvovaginal atrophy or vaginal atrophy was also known as atrophic vaginitis and urogenital atrophy. And in 2014, Ishwish and the National Association of uh, Menopause uh, um, changed the terminology uh, to GSM. And the reason they did that was because they wanted to, everyone to understand that these kinds of vaginal symptoms, genital urinary symptoms, are uh, to be considered a chronic progressive disease characterized by a myriad of symptoms, not just vaginal atrophy. Uh, women with GSM can experience genital pain, dryness, irritation, itching, leucorrhea, um, erythema, thinning of the vaginal uh, epithelium, labial atrophy, you name it, including urinary symptoms like urgency and frequency and recurrent UTIs, and then sexual dysfunction um, with problems with uh, loss of libido, arousal, and lubrication, and, and dyspareunia, and so forth, and pelvic pain. And this was a very, very important change um, for, for us in the clinical world, and it was intentionally made to acknowledge that really just saying vaginal atrophy does not adequately represent what our patients are experiencing, number one. Um, and then it, it, it implies that as clinicians, we have to look beyond vaginal atrophy, right? When we, when we see somebody with atrophy, we have to also screen them for urinary dysfunction and sexual dysfunction and, and so forth. And the other reason for making this change is they really wanted to get away um, from the negative connotations associated with the term atrophy. Although some people will argue and say that syndrome, you know, using the term syndrome is no better, but that was the original intent, was to come up with a term that carries uh, less social stigma and makes it easier for women to communicate these symptoms to their providers. So most of the evidence that we have now shows that about 15% of premenopausal women, so these are women before menopause, and 40 to 54% of postmenopausal women are experiencing some symptom or multiple symptoms within this GSM diagnostic criteria. And it's very, very important to know that premenopausal women can experience these symptoms. So if they're coming to you complaining of these things, don't assume that they're just you know, loopy. This has actually been shown by research. And why is that? Well, we know that um, menopausal, most of these perimenopausal and postmenopausal symptoms are due to the rapid decline or decline in estrogen levels. And um, we know that the rapid decline in estrogen levels happens, <clears throat> leads to a whole bunch of symptoms. And we're not going to talk about everything else that women experience, like thinning of the hair and changes in cognition and fatigue and myalgias and all sorts of other things. We're going to focus on the vagina. But women really can get a whole bunch of symptoms from um, estrogen, uh, uh, hypoestrogenism that they experience in postmenopause. And this, the estrogen decline is most rapid between ages 45 and 55. So this is why we think women start experiencing symptoms even prior to being fully diagnosed with menopause, which for us clinically, the, different, the diagnosis of menopause can only be made until a woman has had no menstrual cycle for a full year. Well, clearly she's been miserable for at least a decade before that, and that's likely due to this just rapid decline of estrogen levels during that time period. Okay, so today we're going to focus mostly on the urogenital symptoms associated with menopause and perimenopause. And um, if you have questions about all the other things that women can experience, I'll be happy to talk to you about it, but we're, we're gonna stay focused. We don't have that much time. Okay. All right, so what do we see in women who have GSM? Well, this, la this rapid decrease in eventual hypoestrogenic estrogenic state leads to thin vaginal epithelium, impaired smooth uh, vaginal smooth muscle, plurifer 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 I swear I have not had anything to drink yet. Um, 
loss of vascularity and collagen and uh, vaginal dryness and itching and dyspareunia and incontinence and prolapse and so forth. And one of the other things that happens is the vaginal pH of the, uh, the, pH of the vagina changes, so the acidity level uh, is, uh, drops, and that um, takes away one of the main protective mechanisms of the vagina. So women in, who have this kind of vaginal change may many times also experience recurrent vaginal discharge um, uh, and, and bacterial vaginosis and yeast infections and recurrent UTIs. And so when you have someone who's in this age group where you think they may be in the perimenopausal or postmenopausal state and they have these recurrent symptoms, one of the first things that you have to think about is the hypoestrogenic state. So there are some ways to identify patients who are at risk for developing um, GSM symptoms, um, and they include women who have had uh, bilateral salpingo-ophrectomy, but also women who have had, say, for example, early ovarian failure from chemotherapy or radiation or other cancer treatments. Women who smoke a lot uh, may go into uh, the hypoestrogenic state earlier, and women who drink uh, can also enter this um, pathway early in life. And so if you have patients who are in the perimet you know, 35 to 45, so they haven't quite started dropping estrogen levels like crazy, but they have any of these other risk factors, you want to counsel them and you want to watch them a little bit closer because... Uh, there's no good news after they start entering perimenopause. So what do we know about the prevalence of these symptoms across? Because somebody asked me this. They said, you know, are menopausal symptoms uh, different in, by, by continent in different c countries and nations and so forth? And there's a little bit of research about that because I swear my grandmother never had menopause. She had no idea what it was. <laughs> my mom, on the other hand, lived on a different continent, and I think she got every single symptom and then proceeded to wake me up in the middle of the night every time she had one of those. So it can be really vary what women experience. But overall, when you look at um, um, different prevalent studies from different uh, continents and different nations, and this was a very good study that aggregated all those findings. Um, this was published in 20... Uh, in 2014, and the data was aggregated between 2014 and 2015, uh, uh, 2000 and 2014. So it was an aggregate of 64 studies, of studies published from Africa, the Americas, Australia, and Eurasia. And what you can see here, and I'm, I'm sorry you can't um, see this on the slide but uh, very well, but here's the prevalence, and I'll, I'll put all of them up, actually. Um, this is the prevalence of um, vasomotor symptoms, myalgias, um, and they're by country and by year, by con continent and by year. And you can see that these symptoms, anywhere between 30 to 70% of women are experiencing these symptoms. The prevalence is huge, um, but it's constant, except for a very few exceptions there in between at the in that bottom left slide. Uh, the prevalence is very, very, very significant. So these symptoms are being experienced across the world by just about everybody who of the female uh, 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 gender and sex, excuse me. Um, this is one, this is the prevalence of sexual dysfunction. And I like to point this out because people don't necessarily associate sexual dysfunction with uh, uh, postmenopausal uh, time period. But it's actually one of the prime times when women start experiencing sexual dysfunction. And of course, it's due to estrogen decline as well. And you can see that the prevalence of that varies. It goes all the way up to, to 70 to 80% of women in Australia. You're a little bit better off if you're in North America, but pretty much. Uh, and women don't talk about sexual dysfunction. I mean, they might come in and they might talk about, you know, the vagina is dry and it itches, but they really, really do not like talking about, I cannot have intercourse because it hurts and so forth. And so we have to screen them for those symptoms as well. And this was a great study done. Uh, this was a United States study. This was about 1,449 women in the United States. And what the investigators did here is they looked for uh, vasomotor symptoms, which are hot flashes and night sweats, and the persistence of symptoms. So the onset of symptoms before menopause and persistence of symptoms after menopause. And this was actually a huge study. And I remember reading the study and going, oh, this really sucks. I really was like, oh my God, this is terrible. And what they found was the mean, uh, median duration of these types of symptoms for women, 7.4 years. 
7.4 years, right? I mean, we're used to telling women, oh, just wait till you're 50 and 52 and then you'll get over. No, no, no. It's misery all the way around before and after the onset of, of menopause. So 7.4 years is the average duration of these symptoms. The medium, uh, median duration of symptoms after menopause, so after menstruation stopped, is four and a half years. And more than 50% of those women had symptoms longer than four and a half years. I swear, it's not all doom and gloom, and there's a point to me showing you this slide, okay? So just hang in there. Women who reported symptoms in premenopause, so before they stopped menstruating, uh, had the longest duration, and they averaged about 11 years of symptoms. Um, and so if the earlier you start, the worse off you are, is basically the point of, of this finding. And then women who are postmenopausal at the onset of symptoms, so the closer you, your symptoms started to that cessation of menstruation, then you had the shortest duration of symptoms afterwards. So this is a little bit counterintuitive because you're thinking, okay, if I'm really young when these symptoms start, thank God because I'll be done sooner, right? It's completely opposite. You are actually more likely to have prolonged symptoms the younger you start. So the point of this, um, me showing you this data is, um, it's actually one of the reasons why NAMS wanted to recategorize the syndrome and, and, and these symptoms. And the point of it is that we really need to think of uh, GSM and these types of menopausal symptoms as a long, long chronic problem. And their statement was that although vasomotor symptoms typically improve over time, GSM is chronic and progressive and unlikely to resolve without treatment. So if a patient is experiencing s symptoms, we really are doing patients a huge disservice by not addressing those symptoms and just saying, oh, you know, cope with it, it'll be okay. Uh, that's really up to the patient, not up to us, whether they just want to cope with it because it's, it's, they're going to be in it for the long ride. Okay, what about the link between um, chronic pain and menopause? Is there really a link, right? We've always heard that chronic pain incident or prevalence goes up as patients age. Um, and actually, there was a study that was just recently, well, published. It was a huge, huge cohort of 200,900 women, and they were veteran women. And what the investigators did is they took all of these women were postmenopausal, so the main mean age was uh, 54. And what they found was that about 26% had uh, menopause symptoms, and 56% had chronic pain, and 22% had both menopausal symptoms and chronic pain. And you know they churned it through uh, through their statistical analysis, and what they actually reported was that women who had menopause were twice as more, uh, had twice as high odds of also having a chronic pain syndrome, and um, they were twice as high, uh, they had twice as high the odds of having multiple uh, pain diagnoses, even after they adjusted for things like age and race and BMI and mental health diagnosis and substance abuse. So this is, the reason I put the slide up here is because, you know, it's like everything else that's chronic. So if you have someone who has chronic GSM symptoms, you really need to perk up to the fact that they may also have other chronic problems going on and that they're at higher risk for also having a chronic pain problem, which means that our screening process for these patients really has to go well beyond just asking them, is your vagina dry? Because that's not capturing the picture at all. So what kinds of other things are associated, what kind of other conditions are associated with vulvovaginal pain in general? Well, there's a whole bunch of things. Like, look at this list, right? I made this small on purpose because I don't want anybody to pay attention to this. Except for there are a couple of things that are very important in, in this group where it's mostly pain specialists that are not gynecologists. And that is, you see myalgias and neuralgias in your practices all the time. And guess what? Women get those problems in the vagina as well. And they also get them in the vagina if they are postmenopausal and have other postmenopausal issues. So when you think about all the things that can go wrong in the vagina, you also have to think about these diagnoses that you are not typically used to associating with a vagina, okay? Now, there are lots of, and I think Dr. Asani talked about this earlier, but there are lots of common chronic pelvic pain conditions that we have to worry about in the reproductive world and below the belt. And those are things like, of course, irritable bowel syndrome and so forth. I see myofascial pelvic pain and 
pelvic neuralgias, right? All of those things. And then we, too, have to worry about non-pain, non-pelvic uh, comorbidities, such as migraines and fibromyalgia and all of those other things that you see in your patients. We see all of this in our GSM patients. And then what we know is that most of these patients, if they have 20% of our patients in general who have a chronic pain comorbidity will have more than one pain condition. So not only do we have to worry about them having GSM and those chronic symptoms, then we have to worry about them having one chron an additional chronic pain syndrome. And then on top of that, it may be multiple chronic pain syndromes. And as a clinician, as a pain specialist, the tendency is to just focus on the things that we know. And we usually tend to, not us, because we're gynecologists, you guys <laughs> usually tend to ignore the vagina because that's not your comfortable space, right? And what we're saying with this talk is we, we really can't ignore the vagina. We have to put her in the same chronic conundrum with the other chronic pain disorders. Lucky us. All right, so we all know, and this applies to our patients as well, that as the number of chronic pain conditions increase, then so does the disability and the dysfunction. So what I tell everyone is that the more disabled and the more dysfunctional your patient is, then the more you have to look for all the other things that are putting them in that dysfunctional and disabled state. <clears throat> so in GSM, we too have to worry about things like anxiety and depression and so forth, in addition to our other chronic pain symptoms. And I think really what is um, sometimes one of the saddest cases that we have is that we'll have a patient who, and this happens not infrequently, we'll have a patient who comes in uh, and their diagnosis is vaginal atrophy, right? And then somebody, you know, maybe the second or the third doctor who's been treating the patient with estrogen realizes that the vaginal symptoms are not getting better. And then they start figuring out that this, our patient has sexual dysfunction, right? And then about two or three doctors down the line, somebody figures out, oh, she's also very depressed and anxious because she's not able to have relations with her patient and she is in pain. And it seems like this patient has to go through a gynecologist, a primary care physician, uh, 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 you know, maybe a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Like, she has to go through a whole bunch of physicians to figure out what really, honestly, if it was a patient with fibromyalgia walking into a primary care office, they would be like, oh, yeah, of course she's depressed because she's got this and this and this and that. So, again, it's your comfortable space, and we want you to get out of it and think about our vaginal patients as well. And so... This brings us to the evaluation of vulvovaginal pain. So if I'm asking you to get out of the comfortable space <laughs> and get into the vaginal space, then how do you do that? Well, actually, it's pretty similar to everything else that you do in pain management. We, too, believe in the biopsychosocial assessment of pain, except this time it's in the vagina. So we, too, take a very detailed history. We do a physical exam, which is a little bit different, arguably, in the vagina, and we'll talk about that. Uh, we try to figure out what the, all the different pathophysiology is uh, as far as the multiple pain um, origins. Um, we assess pain domains. We do all of that in the vagina. The only difference is that we usually have to take uh, the history with our patient dressed, and then we do the exam undressed. We don't, we don't take a history with our patient undressed. We also need things like a chaperone, right? We also have to worry about screening our patients before we touch them. We have to screen them for trauma and PTSD and sexual trauma and so forth because our exam can actually be quite traumatic if we don't do that. And then uh, we have to worry about ruling out some other things like you know abnormal vaginal bleeding and discharge and so forth. But in general, we follow the same pathway that you follow above the belt with just some minor mo modifications. Um, by the way, this principle of uh, taking a history with the patient dress because you're going to follow it by a vaginal exam, which is very uncomfortable, and screening for trauma. Um, this is what we call trauma-informed care in our world, okay? And we follow those principles quite a lot because we have the tendency to, we have the possibility of traumatizing our patients. And then um, the physical exam for these patients, well, um, it's, you know, you start with the exam like you normally would. You look at the mood and the affect of the patient. You'll do your full musculoskeletal exam for obvious reasons in a minute. Um, and then you have to do some unusual stuff like an external visual exam, vulvar exam, and then an external vulvar sensory exam and a single digit exam. And then maybe if you can get to the speculum exam. And what does all of that mean? Well, we start with the external visual exam. And these are some of the changes that we can see in patients who have GSM. Oftentimes, we'll see thinning of the labia or fusion of the labia over the clitoral hood. 
the skin tends to be pale and shiny and smooth, and I tell my patients, wrinkles in the vagina are good. If you're losing your wrinkles, that's not good. That's a sign of aging, so it's reversed from your face. Sometimes we'll see fissuring. Um, this is very common in patients who try to be sexually active, but their vagina, they, they're not able to because the vaginal canal is so contracted, but they push through that anyways because they really want to please their partner, and then they get fissures and abrasions. Um, sometimes they'll get hypokeratosis, uh, like a white, glistening, pale look to the vulva, very thick and um, and sometimes they'll get um, a very prominent urethral car uh, uh, meatus, or sometimes they'll get a caruncle, an actual protrusion of the urethra. So these are all changes that may, you may find in someone who has GSM. And then we have to do a sensory exam. And I, I, it's funny, you're comfortable doing sensory exams, neurosensory exams outside the, vo- the vagina. It's almost the same exact thing in the vagina. We usually, too, we use a cotton tip. We use the wooden end and the soft end. And we ask the patient, do you feel this and do you feel that? Is that sharp or soft? Is it the same on both sides? The only thing that's different is we just have to remember that the um, that the vagina does have a sensory, neurosensory innervation, and it comes from the pudendal nerve from the bottom of the vagina. So, uh, for, excuse me, from the bottom towards the bottom of the vagina. I, I, this thing is not working. Um, and then we have branches of the um, ilioinguinal and iliohypogastric nerves, which innervate the top of the mons and some uh, um, the top portions of the vulva. The clitoris is actually innervated by branches of the pudendal nerve. So someone asked me a little bit earlier about uh, persistent uh, arousal disorder, um, and that's the nerve branch that may be affected. The key thing about the neurosensory exam of the vulva is that you would expect to have the same response that you would if you were testing the arm, right? You want the patient to differentiate between the soft and sharp end of the Q-tip, you want them to have similar sensation on both sides of the pelvis or the vulva. And you want them to not have any allodynia or hyperalgesia. And we have the fortune of also having a reflex. It's called the anal wink reflex. So if you just touch the Q-tip lightly to the, around the, about a centimeter or so lateral to the anal region, the anus will contract. So it's very similar to everything else you do. And then we use the clock face Um, distribution to um, mark any kind of abnormalities on the vulva. Okay. What might you find in patients who have genitourinary syndrome of menopause? Well, you may find allodynia or hypersensitivity, especially around the vestibular area, which is right here. Can you guys see this? Yeah, right around here. Okay. You'll find a really contracted introitus and then a very sensitive uh, vestibule to touch. Okay, uh, But that's it. They very rarely have loss of anal wink or difference between a left and a right, like a true sensory abnormality. Okay, And then we do a, a musculoskeletal exam. And how do you do that in the vagina? And this is actually a very important part of the exam for several reasons. Um, number one, a lot of these patients have a very contracted and small vaginal introitus. So if you just skip right to the speculum exam and you just shove it in there, you're going to cause the patient a lot of pain and bleeding and probably traumatize them. So we highly recommend that you do the single-digit exam first. And uh, you can do that just by gently lubricating a single digit and insert it into the vagina very slowly. So uh, the rules for the vagina are slow insertion and slow removal. Okay, otherwise, it can be very dis- uncomfortable to patients. And so with that single digit, you can palpate essentially almost the entire musculature of the uh, pelvis. And what should a woman be able to tolerate? Well, women actually can tolerate deep palpation quite well. I mean, think about it. Like a baby comes out of there, right? Um, so if you have pain with even light touch, that's abnormal. Okay. So we use pretty deep palpation, and we ask the patient to differentiate between pain or pressure. And they usually can tell us the difference. Um, and then we ask them to voluntarily contract around the single digit, and they should be able to generate a contraction that encompasses the entire digit. And then we ask them to relax, so they should be able to contract and relax. So that's normal muscle function in the vagina. Okay. And what can you palpate? Well, all of these muscles you can palpate with that one single digit. Um, so you can palpate the puborectalis. Um, if you just put your finger in the vagina and palpate from 12 to 6 o'clock, so if you just rotate this way. Uh, you can palpate the pubococcygeus. 
in that same region from 7 to 11 o'clock. I think Dr. Fitzgerald had the face of a clock up there earlier. Well, this is what she meant. Just put the finger in the vagina and press and rotate. And then you can palpate the iliococcygeus from about 4 to 8 o'clock. And the coccygeus, which is a little bit more posterior. And, you know, I put these slides up here so that you, I could quiz you later on and make sure that you've memorized them all. Uh, no, I didn't. The point is, if you can just insert a single digit in the vagina gently with lubrication, it should not hurt. If you're moving your digit around and palpating different structures, it should not hurt. If a patient has pain when you're doing that, then there's something wrong with their pelvic floor muscles. It's just that simple clinically. And here's the obturator internus which is a little bit higher up and a little bit more anterior from 3 to 9 o'clock. So all of this can be very easily done. It takes about 30 seconds to do this. Um, you can, um, if you find an abnormality, I usually get our physical therapist to help us and do a really a good full exam. But for screening purposes, this is more than adequate. Okay. In GSM patients, you might find a shortened and narrower vagina. I mean, there are really, there are some patients where you can barely get a single digit in the vagina. You'll find a lot of loss of elasticity and decreased muscle strength and tone. So they won't be able to squeeze all the way around. Or they'll relax when you tell them to contract. They, they get confused sometimes. And if a patient has pain with intercourse, you many times can find abnormal pelvic floor muscles and areas of pain, trigger points, myalgias, and so forth. Now, after your single-digit exam, you can... Um, proceed if the patient tolerates it to a speculum exam. And a lot of times during the speculum exam, what uh, folks are doing is they're doing a wet prep and um, looking at those cells. And actually you can tell whether someone is postmenopausal just by looking at the wet prep. And um, this is a slide or a representation of what the vaginal epithelium looks like. So at the bottom you have what we call basal cells, and then in the middle you have parabasal cells, and then intermediate cells, and then superficial cells. And that ratio, that composition of the different types of cells changes as you age. So um, what happens is, uh, not only does it change as you age, but these cells start acting differently, and so the vaginal pH changes, okay? So usually the vaginal pH goes up, okay? Um, and remember, it's less acidic, so that's not good. It's less bacteriostatic if that happens. You can also do your PAPS test while you're there, and you can do your vaginitis screen. Now, this, uh, when you look at a slide, you can do what is called, and I'm going to skip right here. Ooh, excuse me, right here. Um, you can do what's called a vaginal maturation index, and this is often used in research, if any of you are looking at this, these studies. Um, but basically, the VMI is the ratio of parabasal cells, remember, they're at the bottom, uh, to intermediate cells, which are right in the middle, to superficial cells, which are right at the top. And what happens is, as you age, your parabasal cell ratio goes up, and your superficial cells, those become very thin. And so, when we describe a, a VMI, usually the first number that we're representing is the, uh, the percentage of parabasal cells on a slide, and then the intermediate cells, and then the superficial cells. So a VMI of 0, 40, 60 means that um, there's no parabasal cells, uh, and most of it is superficial and, and, and intermediate, which is good. That, that's premenopausal. That's a normal vagina. And then as you age, what happens is... Um, the, the parabasal cell percentage goes up. So in the second example, you see the VMI is 75, and then the superficial cells are now zero. Okay. And it's basically, there's no science to it. You just take a slide, you a swab of the vaginal uh, uh, discharge, you put it on a slide, and you just look to see the, how many different types of cells you can identify, and you kind of guesstimate what percentage of the slide that takes. And the parabasal cells, if you look at this picture, they're, they're easy to recognize because they have these big nuclei versus the epithelial cells do not, okay? So in the speculum exam, you can do all of that if you want to, or you can just go by patient history, and that's a good way of diagnosing a patient as well. And um, in this vaginal exam, again, speculum exam, you have to be very, 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 very careful in these patients because if the introitus is narrowed, then it's very difficult to do an exam. 
Now, one of the things that I like to tell uh, folks is that when you are doing the speculum exam and the single digit exam and so forth, you get so focused on looking for changes for, of vaginal atrophy uh, and you forget that there's a whole bunch of other things in the vagina that can cause you to have an abnormal sensory exam and an abnormal musculoskeletal exam. And so we always have to worry about the other things in the pelvis that can cause pain, of course, bladder pain uh, syndrome, myofascial pain, neuralgias, and IBS and so forth. These are all, again, you can pick them up during the exam, so don't get focused on the vagina and forget to do the rest of this, okay? Um, usually, most of the time, I'm focusing on picking up these other diagnoses if the patient also reports urinary symptoms or bowel symptoms or muscular symptoms, like pain at the end of the day or pain with intercourse, right? Those would like, I would uh, almost automatically think rule out musculoskeletal causes. And then chronic constipation and so forth, okay? So if you find these things, it's not GSM. You have to think about these other diagnoses. But let's assume that you have a patient that does not have all these other complications and you just have someone who has just plain old genital urinary symptoms of menopause. What can you do? Well, this is where the news is good, right? I mean, we actually can treat these symptoms in quite easily. In spite of the fact that they're chronic, we can make patients' lives better, which is why it's so important to screen for this. And so usually treatment is based on symptom severity. So we have patients who have very mild symptoms, and for those patients we just do education and non-hormonal lubricants. Then we have patients who have moderate symptoms, and again, this is all subjective. So they're the ones who are telling us whether their symptoms are mild, moderate, or severe. But patients who have moderate symptoms, again, we use education, non-hormonal lubricants, and we might add in low-dose vaginal estrogen if, if there are no contraindications to it. And then there are patients who have severe symptoms or multiple complex symptoms, and in those patients, we'll use all of that, but we might also use physical therapy, vaginal dilators, um, and some other non-hormonal therapies that we'll talk about. So let's start with education and lifestyle modification. What do we ask our patients to do? Well, we ask them to avoid overwashing and drying the vagina, because a lot of times, you know, the vagina is dry and irritated, and so it's, they're thinking, I just need to clean it more, because it's not clean. Sometimes they do have a clear discharge or a non-foul discharge, because those cells are continuously shedding into the vaginal canal, and they just keep washing and washing and washing and making the problem worse. So we don't want them to overwash the vagina. We want them to stop putting things in the vagina. You'd be amazed the amount of things that women put in their vaginas to relieve symptoms. Um, we ask them to, if they're smokers, to stop smoking or wean off tobacco, wear looser garments, use lubrication, even when they're not sexually active. Um, and here's a good one. If they are able to have non-painful intercourse, we actually encourage them to be sexually active because that actually helps. But if they have pain, then we tell them to stop until we fix the pain. Um, they can use dilators and vibrators um, with regularity if they're not sexually active to maintain that epithelium and those muscles. And then uh, usually we ask them to do those things long term. For lubricants, uh, which can provide temporary relief of dryness and itching, uh, we ask them, we have to explain to them lubricants don't reverse your symptoms, they're just really just a band aid. And we encourage them to use gentle lubricants, water-based or silicone-based, and stay away from very oily or heavy compounds or things that can irritate the skin like glycerin and glycol, propylene glycol, and so forth. And in general, really, education and lubrication, we recommend that for all of our patients who have GSM symptoms. Low-dose vaginal hormonal therapy, and I want you to just ignore the multiple things on the slide right now. Just kind of listen to me. But low-dose vaginal estrogen therapy, the research is pretty definitive on this. It's been shown to be effective and more effective and safer in the treatment of these types of symptoms than systemic or oral hormonal therapy. Um, so we usually that's first line for us. Um, the key thing to know about vaginal estrogen level uh, therapy is that systemic levels of, of, of estrogen are actually, they remain quite low, so they're comparable to just being postmenopausal. We don't, by using vaginal therapy, we don't, there's not a lot of systemic absorption, so we don't ha usually have to worry about the same um, side effects as we would with oral therapy. Um, the other thing is um, we don't seem to see, uh, get the same risk, like increased risk of DVT and cardiovascular disease. And as far as I know, there are no reports of it being linked to uh, breast cancer. But in spite of that, if, you, if a patient opens up their vaginal therapy insert, 
all of those risks are listed on there because they use the same um, insert for all hormonal therapy from the FDA. So it's very scary, but we have to explain to patients that actually vaginal hormonal therapy is much safer than oral hormonal therapy. Um, Usually we don't have to do additional progestins to to, uh, protect the uterus uh, with vaginal hormonal therapy, and we... Um, the key thing about it is it takes about 8 to 12 weeks to work. So the patient has to be consistently using it over that time period to see any relief. And vaginal hormonal therapy comes in various forms. It's a, it can come as a pill. It can come as a cream, as a vaginal ring. So the patient does have options for what she is willing to use. Um, for patients who um, are either not responding or for whatever reason cannot use vaginal estrogen therapy, um, um, there are some other options. Uh, one of the first ones that's FDA approved on the market is osfumafine, and I'm sorry I misspelled it here, uh, which is also known, I forget what the other name for it is, but you can use it. It's an oral tablet. It's a selective estrogen receptor modu- modulator, and that's actually the only serum that's been approved for uh, genital urinary uh, syndrome of menopause. The other ones have not really been studied for this, so things like tamoxifen and raloxifen and so forth. And then... Um, there is another one that's called benzodoxyphene, uh, which is FDA-approved to be used in conjunction with equine estrogens uh, for vasomotor symptoms. And then there's, uh, for women who don't want that option, there's also the option of using vaginal DHEA, which is a steroid intermediate on the pathway of estrogen synthesis. Um, and there's one big randomized controlled trial that showed that patients who use a DHEA, which is uh, called Intrarosa, I believe, on the market now, um, have significant improvement in their GSM symptoms. Um, uh, so that's a nice option for them. Um, the other thing about DHEA is we don't have to worry about uterine protection, which is a nice advantage, um, and it does not increase their systemic steroid levels, so that's also nice. Now, for any patient that has a history of breast cancer or abnormal bleeding, we really have to think twice about which one of these options to use. And so we have to have a big discussion about whether we're going to use vaginal hormonal therapy or whether we use one of these other options that may not have, that may be more specific and not have uh, breast binding effect or uterine binding effect. So there are also non-hormonal options. So oxytocin has one big randomized control trial that showed improvement in vaginal symptoms and reduction of pain. And uh, tibolone, which is a synthetic steroid, may also improve uh, vaginal symptoms and sex drive, but the safety is still a little bit questionable. Um, There's also vaginal lasers that are now being used in the community. You should know about this. There's a variety of them. There's Diva and Mona Lisa and all sorts of very fancy names. Um, But basically, laser therapy is proposed to increase vascularity and collagen um, in the vaginal epithelium. So it it literally changes the integrity and the pliability of the vaginal tissue. The lasers come in various types. The issue with laser therapy that people don't know is that it takes about uh, 12 weeks of therapy, 12 sessions before you see effect. And also, um, the trials on on vaginal therapy for GSM are actually small and observational. And and this is a laser, so it does generate some heat and can cause complications in patients. So this, this has to be explained to patients. I usually reserve this option for patients who are absolutely not hormonal therapy candidates, like, you know, they have active breast cancer or something like that. And then for just symptom relief, we can use topical lidocaine for pain relief, and we use pelvic floor physical therapy and and physical and and dilators for everyone who has dyspareunia in addition to GSM. Okay. Sexual dysfunction is a big one, right, because I finished telling you that actually patients have a lot of uh, problems with sexual function, and... um, it's, it's a problem for us clinically because it's not just a matter of improving the vaginal skin. And I tell my patients, you know, we can work on the vaginal tissue and that will get better and the pain will get better, but that doesn't necessarily, may not necessarily make you like your husband and want you, make you want to have more intercourse. So those are two completely different concepts. So there's a, all the environmental and the um, relationship factors that go into sexual function that none of the therapies that I talked about address that except for physical therapy and sexual therapy. 
Um, the other thing about it is that a lot of our patients, they've been living in fear. I mean, they're literally afraid of having intercourse. And it takes a lot to convince them that it's okay to go back and have intercourse. And the way we do that is first we show them that, okay, the physical exam is now not painful. And then usually they're in pel uh, pelvic floor physical therapy. So the therapist goes through and shows them that, okay, that part is not uh, painful. Then we usually have them use vaginal dilators that are comparable in size to their partner um, that they can use to demonstrate that it's not painful. And then if all of that works out, then we tell them, okay, you can gingerly go back to intercourse with a lot of lubrication and just see how it feels. And then it's usually fine once they get over that fear. Um, but GSM is actually one of those few instances that if you find GSM with sexual dysfunction and dyspareunia, it's fixable. I mean, we don't usually tell the patient of the doom and gloom, like, for example, for vulvodynia or vestibulitis, where sometimes we're like, oh, we don't really know if it's going to fix you or not, if we can fix you or not. So what about our patients that have other chronic pain syndromes? Because I also told you that these patients do have other chronic pain syndromes. Well, yes, the picture is as complex as it is for all the other chronic pain syndromes. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because I think Dr. Hassani did a great talk on that earlier. But basically what we do for our patients is what you do. We address the vagina. So we will usually pick some FDA-approved therapy for the vagina, like a vaginal estrogen, for example. And then we might use some other stuff that's experimental and not FDA-approved, and some lubrication and some exercise, and some, uh, uh, you know, maybe laser therapy or something like that. But then we have to address all the other problems. So we have to address their pain, and we have to use sometimes analgesics or um, gabapentin or whatever it is that you prefer to use for analgesia. There is nothing in the research that tells you which one to use over another for GSM. Um, we use a lot of physical therapy, a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy, and a lot of pain education and self-management, which is why we put a pain education talk at the beginning of this day. And then we also have to address their sleep disorders. A lot of people come to us and they think, oh, it's my menopause. I can't sleep because of my menopause. And we put them on vaginal estrogens and their estrogen levels you know, sim vaginal symptoms improve and they still can't sleep. Well, you can't ignore the fact that they may have an actual sleep disorder. And so we have to address sleep disorders, mood disorders, and all of that. And we usually treat those symptoms and we, again, we assess our patients for central sensitization and we address those symptoms if we find them because we know it doesn't matter what the vagina is doing if we don't address all these other things that are impacting the patient's well-being and sexual function and so forth. The little dent we're going to make by focusing on the vagina is not going to be enough, right? We have to address all of this. And so we use, once we have a patient who's very complex, we talk about the vagina, we talk about all of their other symptoms, we lay out all the therapeutic options for each one of their symptoms, we talk about multidisciplinary care, just like you do, and then we use the SHARE model of uh, decision-making. And for those of you who don't know what the SHARE model is, uh, it's got five steps. In the first step, we talk about faulty beliefs. So for our patients, for example, we talk about overwashing the vagina, not understanding that having wrinkles in the vagina is a good thing, <laughs> things like that. Um, and step two is we, we pick an area to focus on for treatment. Usually we start with the vaginal symptoms first, and then we talk about addressing all the other problems later on. We have them pick a goal, and so a lot of patients will say, you know, my goal is to be sexually active. Well, that's a huge goal. <laughs> First, why don't we talk about just getting to a point where your Q-tip and your single-digit exam is not painful? And then let's talk about making you make it through physical therapy. And then when that's not painful, then we talk about intercourse and so forth. So we take a big goal and we cut it down into smaller goals, and then we reassess that periodically. And sometimes we have a lot of obstacles in the way. And guess what our number one obstacle is? Any, any guesses? Compliance. Compliance is one of our biggest problems in the GSM world. Patients don't like to use their vaginal creams and so forth. And, and they feel better, so then they stop using them. You know? So compliance is one of our big uh, uh, issues, which is why we really like to have the patient be very involved in the decision-making progress and in the educational process. So compliance is key. It takes our patients about 8 to 12 weeks to get better because that's how long it takes for the vaginal mucosa to change and revert. Um, and, and, and if you stop using your therapies, usually it reverts back to normal within three months. And this is a problem because the patient will say something like, well, I was feeling great for a long time. 
And then I started feeling bad. So it can't possibly be the fact that I stopped my vaginal estrogen because I did that three months ago and I was fine for three months. Okay, so that's one big problem for us. And then, of course, returning to normal sexual function may actually take even longer because we have to address all the relationship issues and so forth. Usually, most of the time, what we recommend, and I'm going to put these up all at once, is assess these patients about every four to eight weeks and then do that. Usually by 16 weeks, you really should have improvement of symptoms and all that. And if, you, if you're not getting symptoms, symptom improvement, then you need to seek help because really... With GSM, unless there's a lot of other chronic pain issues involved, with GSM alone, you should get symptom relief by that two to three month mark. And if not, just go ahead and get some help. All right. So just to summarize, we too use a multimodal approach to the treatment of GSM. We have to actually think about these symptoms from premenopause all the way into postmenopause. Uh, we usually, our primary way of treating these symptoms is low-dose vaginal estrogen, unless there are contraindications. We use a lot of education about vaginal care and vaginal function. This is a very important component of therapy. If we don't do this, your patient will most likely fail therapy. Um, it's very, very important. For those of patients who don't respond to initial vaginal estrogen, then we will go through all those other different therapies like CIRMs and vaginal lasers and DHEA and all of that. Um, and then the other thing that we always have to pay attention is if our patient's not responding right away, did we miss something? Did we not assess the patient fully for all the other chronic pain syndromes and dysfunction that can happen in the pelvis? So we always have to keep that in mind for patients who do not get better. All right. And so that's my talk. For those of you who uh, want to learn more about pain, uh, and I'm actually I'm closing the session for the IPPS today. So for those of you who want to learn more about pelvic pain, um, you can check out our website. It has a lot of educational material that's free for patients and providers. We, too, celebrate Pelvic Pain Month. September is pain month. How many people know that? Yes, September is pain month, yes. But May is Pelvic Pain Month. So... Uh, we celebrate that, and that's the website where you can get more resources and education. Okay? And I'll take questions for anybody if you want to stay, but otherwise, thank you. Yes? So for patients who are using vaginal cream, how long do you tell them, the question I'm repeating, how long do you tell them to wait before having intercourse? So I actually had a husband ask me once, am I going to turn into a woman? And the answer to that is no. Your patient can be sexually active even while they're using vaginal estrogen because the systemic absorption for both male and female is very, very low. Um, so I usually have my patients, you know, it's hard. Vaginal estrogen uh, regimens were designed initially to be used on a daily basis, but cream can be very messy when you use it daily, especially if you're sexually active. It tends to accumulate in the vagina. So I have patients use it every other day and just apply it after they're sexually active. But if they happen to have intercourse, that's fine. Husband will be just fine. No boobs. <laughs> Any other questions? You guys have a great time, and thank you for coming at this late hour. <laughs> <laughs>